Hi, welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Welcome back to Medicus. This is Nate, and today you'll hear me with a new voice. Dave Lee is one of our newest Medicus producers, and it's my privilege to introduce him. Dave's a dual-degree student here at Stritch, working on his MD, as well as a master's in public health, with a focus on policy and management. Before starting school, he worked as a medical scribe and briefly in healthcare tech. So Dave's dual degree is especially relevant to today's discussion because as of late, we've become more and more interested in students who choose to take a year off during medical school for a special project or a program. Recently, you heard an interview with Blake, who did a year-long fellowship at the American Medical Association, or AMA, which we thought was incredibly interesting. There are lots of other similar programs out there, and students take advantage of them, like my co-host Dave. So as I learned more and more about these different fellowships and dual degree programs, I've been wanting to sit down with all these people and talk about what they actually learned during their year off and how it's complemented their medical training. So today we invited Nelly Gonzalez, who's currently doing a one-year MBA program between her third and fourth year of medical school. She graduated from Berkeley with a double major in molecular and cell biology and cognitive science. And before she came to Loyola for medical school, she worked for eight years in health policy management and public health. The dual MD MBA program is super interesting and its popularity has skyrocketed in the last 20 years. In 1994, there was only six schools who even offered it in the United States. And today there's over 60 with more than 500 graduates each year. So needless to say, it's a huge phenomenon in medical education and we're excited to have Nellie on the show to discuss it with us. So with that, let's cut to the interview. So Nellie, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So my name is uh, Nelly Gonzalez. Um, I'm currently a fourth year MD MBA student at Loyola Stritch. Great. So MD MBA student. So you did your third year clinicals already and now you're doing your fourth year after this? Correct. So I finished my third year rotations last June um, and then I'm taking a year break right now to do my one year MBA program and then I'll be back in this coming August to finish fourth year and then apply to residency in September. Okay, that's so interesting. What made you decide to do that? Before medical school, I actually worked for about seven years. I worked in nonprofits. I worked for the Alameda County Public Health Department in Northern California. Um, And in that capacity, I was project manager for a coalition of pipeline programs in Alameda County, whose mission was to increase diversity in the health workforce. I interacted a lot with management at top level so you know clinics and hospitals and I realized that there was a lot of decision making on patients and things that would impact patient care by people who didn't necessarily have the experience of working with patients directly in a clinical setting and I think that it created some systemic issues in terms of, you know, you have the best intentions of increasing efficiency, improving the quality of care, but in practice, it doesn't get executed the way that you Hmm. planned. Um, And a lot of that is because people making these decisions weren't very familiar with, um, in real time, what goes on when you take care of a patient and the challenges and the complexities that arise. So kind of having that perspective and that experience um, over, you know, a long period of time, I realized that if 
I was able to get an MBA and kind of look at the healthcare system from that systemic point of view and also learn the language of finance, because at the end of the day, medicine is a business that I could perhaps not just take care of patients one-on-one and provide healthcare in that way, but provide care to a large group of people by kind of tar- look, working in, in the medical field or in healthcare from a more larger systemic like leadership or administrative role. Okay, so it sounds like you're you're pretty interested in like the high level um, uh, management um, or administrative side of medicine as well. D- so, did you decide to pursue an MBA before you started medical school? Then, yeah. So, one of my mentors uh, before medical school was actually an MD MBA. He actually did not go to residency, and he decided to start his own company right after oh, uh, graduating medical school. And he had an MBA as well, so he pursued, uh, he's actually currently doing, or his company focuses on increasing diversity of pharmaceutical trials. So he's kind of like the go-to guy when pharmaceutical companies want to run trials, but they want to increase diversity of their patient population. So that's something that he's done, and I worked with him for a long time, like seven years. And so I kind of got to see the opportunities that arise when you focus on something else besides healthcare, and you apply your medical knowledge in other ways. So that was something that I, I identified that I definitely wanted to do. Uh, as I, I, and I actually applied to a few MD, MBA dual degree programs from the onset because they are, there's a few in California, okay. where, which is where I grew up. And once I kind of went through my first two years of medical school and my third year of clinical rotations, I realized that I definitely wanted to do the <laughs> MBA as a as a medical student in my third year rotations, I I saw a lot of, you know, firsthand the challenges that physicians face from, you yeah. know, electronic health records yeah. to policies that are implemented on, you know, the process of how patients are taken care of. And mm. it kind of reaffirmed what I had seen before medical school. Okay, so you mentioned a couple of things that I was really interested in. So basically what you kind of talked about was what you did to prepare for it, like how you were inspired and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of mentioned choosing to do it during your third year, like applying for it and applying to different programs. Can you like talk a little bit about what a student would have to do prerequisite wise to be qualified for the MBA? Sure. So there's a variety of different ways to go about the MD MBA path. You can apply from the onset to medical schools that already have an MD MBA dual degree option. Um, when I decided to go to Loyola, I knew that they didn't have that option. They have, you know, MD, MPH, MD, Masters in Ethics or in Research. And so I actually just decided to carve out my own path based on actually models that I was familiar with already. Okay. Um, so in terms of preparation, it's a little bit different for medical students because it kind of depends on which programs you applied. I know I actually met one Loyola Stritch a student who now graduated who also pursued an MBA. He's the only other person that I was able to find. Hmm. And he actually decided to go to a one-year program, um, I want to say, at Emory, because they have one-year program MBAs there. There's only a few in the country. The majority of MBA programs are two-year programs. So he decided to do that. I decided to try to see if I could do it here at Loyola. And so that's how I, I kind of decided first year to try to see how yeah. I could arrange it and fit it in between my schedule, between third and fourth year. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So it's like a program you kind of made yourself. Yeah. Can you talk about how the uh, MBA, the coursework is kind of structured? Um, like, are there certain distinctions or track focuses within the program? So this program specifically at Loyola mm-hmm. 
was, so I, I approached actually the dean of the business school, I would say maybe halfway through my second year or beginning of third year with mm -hmm. the idea of doing a one-year program. I felt like it was feasible because I knew that other schools offered that option. And she's extremely generous and super friendly and welcoming. And she was definitely open to the idea of creating a path for medical students to do their MBA. Hmm. They already have an executive management MBA at the Quinlan, Quinlan School of Business at Loyola, specifically for those who are working in healthcare. Oh. That's a two-year option. And it's a two-year option primarily because the people are, everyone is working full-time. So these are individuals who have, on average, like 10 to 15 years of workforce <sighs> experience. And then they, um, they are now returning to school to do their MBA program, and it's uh, kind of a part-time program. It's an executive program. So the structure of the current MBA was something that I kind of designed mm -hmm. with the help of the dean at the School of Business, and she proposed to have me take 50% of my courses as part of the regular evening MBA, mm -hmm. and then 50% of my courses through the healthcare executive oh, uh, management MBA. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing right now. And it's Nobody else has really done this before, so I'm kind of the first person, the pilot yeah. project. If, you Pioneering know. it. And then, uh, <laughs> and then we're trying to recruit more people to do the program. Right. So I was just going to back up and clarify those different types of MBAs. Then. So you said there's like a traditional MBA in that last two years, you said? Correct. Mm -hmm. And then there's the executive MBA, which is like an evening program, which would also be two years, but I assume it's not full-time. Correct, yes. Okay. So you are kind of doing a mixture of the two because you are full-time, but you don't have two years exactly. to do it. Exactly, okay. yes. Okay. I understand that yes. now. Yeah, um, I, I was just curious. Um, is there a reason you decided to go with the uh, dual degree, like, uh, you know, kind of pursuing the MD and MBA concurrently rather than um, uh, what it sounds like a lot of uh, folks who are already professionals in their field um, pursuing it later on in, in evening courses? Yeah, that's a great question. So I definitely thought about the different options, especially because I wasn't sure it was going to be feasible to do it in one year at Loyola. And I decided to try to do it now because since I've had a few years of work experience in the past, I felt that I didn't need that internship between first and second year necessarily. A lot of people go to business school wanting that internship experience between first and second year because then after you want to network and you have connections and you're hoping to get a job perhaps at where you worked, but that wasn't really the case for me. Like I'm planning to go to residency and apply my MBA skills in a different way. Mm -hmm. That was one reason. The second reason I, is I would actually really like to apply my MBA skills during residency. Okay. Um, so if I could start during residency in terms of taking leadership roles or working consulting, a lot of people consult during mm -hmm. residency who have dual degrees, like that's something that I'm really interested in is starting, since it's something that I know I want to do is leadership and administration, start developing that now, since I am kind of a non-traditional older student. Mm. I think there's value in doing it after as well. You have more experience in the clinical setting. You are more familiar with kind of the complexities and challenges of patient care. I've heard that, you know, some people get more ideas in terms of how to make things better. For me, I, I just felt it was the best decision to try to do it now. There's also fellowships, administrative fellowships that you can do during residency mm -hmm. or leadership fellowships. That was another option I had considered as well. I think those are targeted a bit more towards academic medicine, right. which I think is a great option, but I think I wanted to go more into the business side of medicine. Gotcha. Okay. That's, okay, that's really interesting because 
so like as we prepare for these podcasts, we basically know nothing about MBA programs. <laughs> and so <laughs> okay. uh, it's a lot of the podcasts are like this. We, you know, we have a topic that we absolutely know nothing about. That's why mm-hmm. we invite you on to talk about it. And I've been uh, like, you know, going on to like Harvard Business Review right. and like looking at these articles okay. about like, why do I want to do an MBA? Like, what does it offer me? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I even found like multiple podcasts with people where they talked about the MBA programs that they had at their schools and like what they do, what they're for. And it does seem like there are physicians who, you know, like it after and there are some who like it both like during school mm-hmm. and it all just kind of depends on the person. So for you, like during school, it makes sense. It did. Yeah. And I, I really do think it depends on the person because I think it depends what it is that you want to do with it. Um, I also think that some people don't see the value of the MBA until after mm-hmm. they've graduated residency and they've yeah. been in practice for a few years. There's actually, I want to say, I want to say maybe a third to a fourth, depending on the cohort of the uh, students in my healthcare executive program are physicians currently. Wow. Oh, okay. um, and it was interesting because when I first met them, they're like, well, why are you doing it now? And I was like, well, why are you doing it? Why are you doing it now? And it was really the same reasons. Um, it was yeah. just that I think they realized, you know, later on that this would be valuable. And uh, I think it was honestly just because of my work experience from before that I realized that it'd be valuable. Something that stuck with me is um, someone that he, she's a physician, he's an internal medicine physician, and he's already working in administration, and he felt that he wanted to continue kind of going up that administration mm-hmm. ladder, but he realized that he needed the finance background to be able to read, you know, balance sheets, to be able to understand, you know, acquiring assets and what that means for a hospital in order to, to continue propelling up the, the administration ladder. And that's why he decided that, you know, getting an MBA would be worth it. And I said, that's exactly it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that really brings us to like a new subject, which I think is really interesting, which is what do you actually learn in the MBA courses? Because <laughs> I, I do, I, so in my process of like researching for this, I really have like tried to figure out like, what do you learn in MBA courses? Yeah. And I've, I've learned that it may be a little bit different in the executive course versus the traditional yes. one. Because I know that most people who are doing a traditional MBA, they probably have have a business degree already. Yes. So they probably already took Finance 101. Mm -hmm. They took Accounting 101. They've taken multiple prereqs in order to be qualified for this program. So maybe like learning how to balance uh, like Excel spreadsheets is not something they teach in a traditional (laughs) MBA. But maybe in this like healthcare executive MBA program, it's very important. Can you talk about like what classes you took and Mm -hmm. how they helped you and things like that? Definitely. So, so you're right. I think there is, I actually really like the combination of taking um, half of my classes from different co- with different cohorts because you're right, the uh, MBA, the regular MBA cohort are people that already have some kind of either work experience or, you know, their undergraduate degree is something in business related. And then you go to healthcare management and they're all people working in healthcare with very little to no kind of background on the hard skills of business, uh, which is why they're there, right? In terms of the classes, so my schedule's pretty predetermined because it is one year. It is rigorous. Now I kind of understand why it's two years. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's predetermined. So my first quarter, and it's based on a quarter system for Loyola School of Business, I took a human resources class. Um, I took introductory like statistics and economics, uh, both all three, which I had never taken any coursework in before. Um, and I also took marketing management. Um, okay. My second quarter, I took another economic class, which is healthcare economics. Mm-hmm. So it's basically looking at economics, but strictly from a healthcare perspective. Yeah. So Medicaid, Medicare, ACA, um, 
you know, in terms of how do how do you quantify, you know, the value of a life for economic purposes? How are some of these pricing decisions made in terms of, you know, hospital care? Um, I also took financial accounting um, and I took uh, operational management, which is like operations and strategy. And uh, I took project management. So currently I'm taking uh, strategy management, data analytics, corporate finance and patient safety and risk management. Okay, so you make it sound like you are taking four classes at a time. Is that how that that works? You're doing like four different classes. Are there four different tests for those classes? Do they integrate the tests? How does that work? So yeah, it's four different classes. It's a full-time program where, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. a lot of, for the majority of these people, that it's like a part-time program. Yeah. They are not integrated. They're completely individual, like separate. A lot of the work in MBA and it may be similar for other dual degree programs that are not medicine related are very project based. So I've had, exa- instead of exams, a lot of project based presentations, a lot of teamwork. So as I mentioned right now for my strategy management course, uh, it's actually my capstone project for my MBA program. Oh, okay. So I'm working with a great group of, of people. Uh, one's a surgical PA, another one's an internal medicine physician um, in Chicago, another one's the administrator of a nursing facility. And so we were just kind of put together to work, to select and then work on a project together. And we're actually working on developing a business plan to expand a clinic for LGBT individuals that are interested in gender affirmation surgery. And this is something that is actually happening right now in terms of something that's being looked at and a hospital system in in Chicago wants to do this, so we're kind of Mm. putting it together for them in terms of, you know, how would you market it, how would you structure it, how would you finance it, all of that, and it's this culmination of 50 pages of a business plan that we'll present to them in three weeks. Wow, that's exciting. So it's a lot of that kind of work, very hands-on, very, you know, application of the skills that you're learning Mm -hmm. and a lot of teamwork. Okay. So when we talk about the classes themselves then, is it is it kind of like a lecture mm-hmm. format and then you have like these small groups where you work on these projects together or is there like no lectures or is it like reading on your own or what kind of information is presented to you? Yes, yeah, so it depends on the class. For corporate finance, it's lecture and then a lot of practice problems. Um, <laughs> that's how you learn math. Yeah. And for strategy, it's a lot of conversations. So it's almost, it's a lecture, but it's also a discussion with the professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've looked at like cases in terms of how health systems have changed their policies and structures and how to make it better. And he wants us to, to chime in. And it's helpful because for the healthcare executive program, since a lot of, indiv- or everyone in, in the class is very experienced and is currently working on um, or our healthcare providers themselves, they have a lot to chime in to from mm-hmm. their own perspectives and their own experiences. And I think I've learned just as much from sitting in lecture and having discussions from mm-hmm. like other peers as well. Mm-hmm. For my marketing class, my group was actually an engineer that worked for a pharmaceutical company and he did like quality stuff. And then I also was working with an accountant at a bank. Mm-hmm. So it, you just learn from your peers a lot. And as you're working with projects and you learn how to work with people from totally different backgrounds that you just met, and now you have to work on this really kind of involved project together, which I think is actually really good practice yeah. for medicine in general, okay. um, yeah. because that's what you'll end up having to do in residency. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of what you've learned in these classes has had value for you going moving forward in your medical career. Do you think any of these classes or any of these topics uh, might be incorporated into the, like the main medical curriculum or might be applicable in that regard? I think they're definitely applicable. I actually think 
if I had more time, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I would love to create like a mini MBA curriculum that people could attend, like medical students, yeah. um, either like as an extracurricular right. or as an elective. Uh, because even just, for example, my accounting class, like learning how to read a balance yeah. sheet, I mean, that's just useful for your own personal <laughs> life. Right? <laughs> your own personal budget. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of it is applicable just for yourself. And then, for example, healthcare economics. Like, I think personally, you know, doing an MBA won't necessarily change how I practice patient care, but mm. I think it will change how I approach medicine in general as right. a system. And I think it's made me question a lot of the things about why things are the way that they are mm. it's it and I think that's important right and also and also consider how can we make it better right not just yeah. question why are things this way but how can we make it better not just for patients but for people working in this environment yeah. um, and I, th- I think it's very applicable to kind of just look at also the cost of things right mm-hmm. so in terms of approaching medicine think considering cost as a as a factor when you prescribe medications when you run labs right. and considering what that is going to cost society mm-hmm. right the hospital system the patient i think those are important things to to take into consideration so yeah. i think in that sense it i think it has influenced how i will approach the practice of medicine in the future i mean that really does resonate with me cuz i'm doing my um uh, mph classes right now but we also took healthcare economics which i'm sure was much more broad level than than what you're doing right now. But yeah, no, it it definitely forced me to reckon with a lot of how we shape physician reimbursement and how that in in turn impacts like incentive structures and how we practice Mm -hmm. medicine. And it it definitely brings into question, like, are we doing it in the best way we can? And ultimately, like, are patients getting the best care? Right. Which, I mean, I feel like should be the main driver, as well as, you know, like societal cost, which in turn impacts right. yeah, uh, quality of care. So what you've mentioned about the way that you think it's going to affect your care, I think that's super interesting because that kind of brings us into a new topic of like, why would a physician want to get an MBA? And like, we could talk about that in general. Uh, we kind of started off with that a little bit at the beginning. Something that I was researching is why would a physician want to do this at all? Like what opportunities, what is it open for them? Do they make more money? Do they have a better understanding? Do they do different work? Do they leave clinical medicine and go to administrative medicine? It's, there's a lot of different things to consider. So for you, how do you plan to use like this MBA degree in your career exactly, do you think? Mm-hmm. So that's a, it's a great point uh, because I think it also speaks to the fact that you don't need an MBA to go into administration or to become a leader. I mean, definitely mm-hmm. not, right? Uh, for me, it was more about what I wanted to do long term. Like I had mentioned you know, a little earlier, I definitely see myself seeing patients, but I definitely see myself taking on a heavier role in, in leadership. And for me, it was more about, okay, what skills am I missing that I can get from an MBA? that would be harder to develop on my own. And for me, it was really the finance aspect. So the, you know, speaking kind of that language of the bottom line, right? And I think that's really important because as you go forward in your career, you will get to a point where, unfortunately, a lot of decisions around patient care are made on a basis of finances, right? How, what can we afford? Mm -hmm. Um, Or how can we finance this to be able to afford it? And I think, you need to be able to speak that language of numbers to make your case, mm-hmm. right? Is this worth the return on investment? And, you know, will this make money for the hospital? Will this create, or what kind of value is this creating, right? If not just sure. maybe in a strictly speaking, like economic sense, but, you know, what kind of value is this adding? Mm-hmm. But to make that case, 
you know, in a financial way, I think only makes your case stronger. As an undergraduate, I, my degree was in cell biology and cognitive science, so I had <laughs> no clue what I was doing yeah, in terms uh-huh. of accounting and finance. And so I think in that sense, that was my strongest motivation. Now that I'm in the program, I actually think it's strengthened my confidence. I think the first three years of med school are challenging. <laughs> uh, and even though I had been in the workforce for a, a long time before medical school and I felt like I had developed you know, strong sense of purpose and confidence and identity when I got to med school, it's challenging. And I think that does take a toll on everybody's confidence and security and sense of, you know, why am I doing this? And and I think now that I've been in business school, it's almost been a reminder to, you know, step back of why I'm doing it, um, what's possible and how to do it. And I think I've regained some of that that confidence to move forward at a at a good point because I'm about to apply to <laughs> residency. So. No, that's like super interesting because it really falls in line with what I've heard from physicians in who have gotten MBAs. So I was listening to this interview by Dr. Maria Chandler. I don't know if you've ever even heard of her, but she's apparently the chair of some sort of like the Association of MD-MBA programs or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so she's also like the chair of the UC Irvine MD-MBA program. Mm-hmm. And it's actually really significant at UC Irvine because I think they're one of the first people to really offer that program. And I think 20% of the UC Irvine students get that MBA uh, combined degree. So that is like insane. Like 20% of your students get it's very high. So she has a lot of experience. And she said that one of the things that she's always amazed at is the like difference in demeanor and confidence and just presence in the MD, MBA students after they finish their degree. She um, was talking a little bit about how some programs will even do things like uh, videotape you while you give a speech or mm-hmm. just give you feedback on like your posture and things like that, which we all don't really get very much feedback right. on sometimes. And even those little differences has made a huge difference for these students. They just come back more confident. I agree. Uh, I would agree to that. I think, and, and like I mentioned, I think it was also interesting for me to kind of reflect back and realize that I had lost a little bit of that confidence in my first three years <laughs> in medical school. And now that I'm almost done with my program, I've realized that I've gained some of it back. And a lot of it, I think, has to come from, it's almost a little bit of a safer space, if I will, um, mm-hmm. in terms of making mistakes and and also interacting with peers that you realize are very bright and are contributing and are providing you with feedback. But it's, it's a safe space. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, it's a little bit more of a safer space, if you will, than you know in medicine when you're doing rotations, where I think people are afraid to mess up or mm-hmm. to say the wrong thing or to look like they don't know what they're doing in front of their peers um, or their you know attendings and physicians. But I think in, in business school, it's almost expected, right? Because you're yeah. all learning, you're all there uh, for the same reason. And especially in the healthcare executive program, where there's, you know, other physicians and, you know, attendings and, you know, very respectable individuals that are doing great work. And you have to do, you know, presentations almost every other week and you have to participate and question things and question sometimes things that they say, you realize that you do have something to contribute. And I think that's really important in terms of gaining, you know, a sense of confidence back. That just, for some reason, as you were talking, I had the thought, um, in MBA programs, do you get a grade? (laughs) Does anyone like give you an A, B, or C, or do you just pass? 
That would be great if you just passed, but no, you do get a grade. You do get a grade. Yes, you do get a grade. Do you grade. put that on your resume? I don't know. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. I guess that's something. That, that's something I was thinking about because people put their GPAs on their resume. I think. That's true. I, I, oh boy. So they do give you a grade. Oh, I think yeah. that's unfortunate. They, do, do people like advertise that? Like, oh, top of the class, like magna cum laude in my MBA program. They might. I don't know. That's something I just out of thought like about. Like seven people. Like, right. Yeah. I'm might. sure if you're magna cum laude, I'm sure. Why wouldn't you advertise right. it? Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. You know, I, I and that's another thing. It's a, it's an interesting point because grades aren't as important in mm-hmm. MBA in business school as right. they are in medical school, and they're both grad school, but they really aren't as important. I think professors just really want you to learn, and will also realize at least at Quinlan that a lot of people are working full time, um, maybe part time, but a lot of people are working full time or are married or have families, and having that balance is a little bit more difficult when you're trying to focus in school. Yes, there are grades, but I wouldn't say that the emphasis is on grades at all. Yeah. It's more about the quality of your work. And it's a completely elective program, too, which Correct. I think is so interesting. Because like, like the MD curriculum is, uh, it's like a requirement to become mm-hmm. a physician. So if you want to be a physician, you have to do it. So That's everyone knows that you're there to right. learn. Right. That's interesting. Right. Earlier, you were kind of mentioning some of the things that you, you feel like we can do better in healthcare and, and kind of um, seeing that from a broader perspective. Would you mind kind of digging into that a little more? Like sure. what particular topics are you especially interested in and making an impact? Sure. So I will speak to two projects that I am actually currently working on since they're the most fresh on my mind. So the first one is part of my patient safety and risk management course. Uh, we had to pick a, a patient safety topic and do like an enterprise risk management evaluation of it. So my topic was electronic health records. And I picked it because I actually read a really recent Fortune article that was titled uh, Death by a Thousand Clicks. And it spoke to just the implementation of EHR and questioning whether it's actually met its purpose, uh, which was to make increase patient safety and make healthcare more efficient, right, through incentives. And the article was arguing that it had not. Um, And I think the article is very interesting. I definitely recommend it. Uh, But I think in terms of looking more into that topic and learning about the history of electronic health records, I realized that EHR is the prime example of how a lot of big ideas in medicine or in healthcare have great intentions, but are not always designed or executed properly in terms of making it efficient for physicians to execute. The article mentioned how, you know, EM physicians click 4,000 times by the end of their wow. of one shift. Wow. They mentioned how, you know, judges aren't required to type their own notes while they're listening to a case. Why would you ask a physician to type their own notes while listening to a patient? And I mean, we all know that there's data around, you know, attention span in terms of when you're paying attention to something and whether you're actually um, remembering what they're saying, right? There's also issues around the interface itself. So, you know, as we all know, Epic is one of is the biggest actually electronic health record company in the industry, but apparently there's like thousands of them. Mm-hmm. And some hospitals to take advantage of the incentives that were being offered as part of the High Tech Act in 2009, mm-hmm. started buying the systems but never fully implemented them. Right. So some physicians are actually still using paper notes even though they have access to an electronic health record. Yeah. And that creates issues because then you have some providers using electronic health records at the same hospital but others don't. Then there's issues with synchronizing the different interfaces. 
and it's leading to patient safety issues in terms of medical errors. So there's a recent lawsuit that took place because um, a, a patient went in for headaches and the physician had actually ordered a, some scans and that order didn't go through. And this patient actually ended up having an aneurysm and it was literally just due to the interface. So the electronic health record, it, the order just literally didn't go through. And there's been multiple examples of this going on where sometimes orders won't go through because the pharmacy is using a different electronic health record version than the hospital is. And this is a big problem. We don't have any concrete data on you know how many deaths have been caused or like patient errors or like medical errors, but and it, part of it is actually lack of transparency. Right. So there isn't any regulation right now on these companies that have electronic health, that are offering ele- electronic health record systems, um, which is a big part of the issue is the lack of transparency and lack of data around right. this. But again, just to kind of circle back to your question, to me, this is a, a prime example of, again, ideas that are innovative, that are very well-intentioned, that could have made a big impact. Uh, but again, because the kind of deployment of these systems wasn't really properly designed at all, right. um, you could even, some argue that the incentive structure was poorly designed as well. Absolutely. Um, they end up failing, um, unfortunately, and, and if not causing more harm to patients. Right. Um, yeah, I I was just nodding while you were saying that just because, um, I mean, I, I, w- I worked as a scribe for a couple of years after school, like um, in the emergency department, and I saw a lot of the ground-level issues uh, involving EHR implementation because the town I was working at had two main hospital systems, one of which used, I think, Epic, and the other used Centricity, which is another uh, big EHR uh, developer, mm-hmm. and speculating on, like, the incentive structures, like, there's not a whole lot of, like, benefit for them to make it easy to share, like, data, over, right. like, between the two systems. So we would have to wait to fax information that was on like an electronic health record system from the other hospital when there's a patient here with an emergency so we can actually practice continuity of care. But mm-hmm. the fact that we're using 80s technology while we're mm-hmm. trying to like- I Never understood that. Yeah, yeah, when everything's digital, like it mm-hmm. was just baffling to me. Right. I mean, isn't that something to do with the fact that faxes are secure, apparently? <laughs> I, I think that's a, a common, defense use yeah. like HIPAA is often used as kind of like a, a, an, an argument for that uh-huh. kind of thing but I, I'm not sure we'd have to do someone out there probably knows the answer to this I remember I used to have that same exact problem at my at a clinic I used to work at as well is whenever you transfer records we would just fax them and then rescan them into our system because apparently that's you can't email them because email is not secure right right <laughs> email definitely isn't yeah. and then interfaces have to be made like custom for each organization so it's just insane i don't know it is and then you have some systems that are you think they're safer but they're not because the way that the data is stored Mm -hmm. it's actually not encrypted or it's not people think it's secure but it's not so that's another issue that's been going on where things are scanned and then people are like oh it's secure but it's actually not because the way that it designed it or you know whatever it may be it's like actually not encrypted or anybody can have access to it so it's it's com it's complex. Yeah. <laughs> so so have you had to like learn like teach yourself a lot of this kind of like uh, I, IT level like um, uh, information just to like try to do this project or no I haven't think it just <laughs> I haven't done my data analytics class. Yeah. No, it's just more thinking about you know how do we if we have this now implemented you know ninety seven percent of like providers now use CHR right, mm, right. Um, up like from very low numbers in two thousand and nine. 
how do we um, adjust for risk right now that we have Epic in hospitals? How do we look at the system that's already in place and say, okay, how do we kind of solve these loopholes that are in in the system? It's increasing our costs, so how do we reduce those costs in terms of improving the EHR system? Physicians or providers in general are frustrated with electronic health records. How do we make that better? Is there any way that we can look at the EHR system that we're using to make it better, make it safer for patients? Do we need to talk to all of our vendors or people that we contract with to make sure that the interface is in, um, in sync with what we're using? So I think it's more about, okay, it's we bought it, we spent funds on it. It's kind of implemented in you know most hospital systems, but how do we ad- assess the risk and how do we make it better and safer for patients? That's kind of what my project is. Yeah. yeah. So that topic is really interesting to me because that analysis could technically be done by like uh, just a non-physician administrator, right? They could do that analysis. But I guess what we're talking about in a way is how does a physician doing that project like better than a non-physician doing that project? And uh, I was looking at a article that was written by a woman named Amanda Goodall. And she was talking about how when physicians do those projects, like, you know, MD, MBAs do those kinds of projects, it creates or it results in a more physician-centered and a more patient-centered and a more care-centered solution to that issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing that she used to cite this was a study that she did, and it was just a very, it was a very basic study. I don't think she was trying to make very many conclusions from it, but what she did was she looked at the U.S. News & World Report list of top hospitals, which there's arguments for and against all of these hospitals. Maybe it's, it's, maybe it's like an actual evidence-based list. Who knows? It's just, it, but either way, we know that that list definitely tells us something about those hospitals' reputation. Mm-hmm. And sh- what she did was she looked at the CEOs of all those hospitals, and she checked to see if they are physicians or if they are business-oriented people. And what she found is that in the top hospitals, they were much more likely to have a physician as their CEO rather than just a normal business person. And so what she kind of concluded was, you know, who knows if the physicians are doing a better job at CEO. We don't necessarily know that. But what we do know is that these top hospitals do have one. So that's something to consider. I mean, I'm biased, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. But so I think there is an argument for both, uh, to be honest with you. I think... Of course, you know, when you ask, for example, me, I'll use me as an example, you know, to solve a, you know, a problem in a a hospital or a clinic, you know, somebody that has seen patients that will continue to see patients, right, as part of, you know, my life's work, of course, I will be thinking about, you know, my perspective, but also my patient's perspective and ensuring that it's a safe, you know, efficient process for both of us. And I think it's harder when you don't have that experience. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily their fault or, you know, or anything. I just think that it's just difficult when you haven't had that experience. It's just a very unique experience. With that said, I think there is value to have people involved in designing these, these systems that, that are not physicians um, or that are not nurses or healthcare providers or PAs. Um, and I think it's because we do have a lot to learn from other industries. 
One of the industries that is frequently mentioned in a lot of my coursework is the airline industry, right? How have they managed to make something that is high risk very safe for people? They've referred to Atul Gawande's you know, checklist yeah. you know, manifesto and just the idea of having checklists, right, and how that's been implemented in operating rooms to make it safer for patients. So I do think that there are things that we can learn from other industries that do apply to healthcare. Personally, I think it's more about having that balance, um, having a balance of people with a wide you know, set of skills that can contribute their ideas, but also not forgetting that at the end of the day, it's about you know taking care of, of individuals, and you can't lose that. And if you have nobody at the table that has ever been in that situation, you know, in a room with a patient, then things will get lost um, in terms of that mission of having patient-centric care. Sure. Well, you know, thanks for so much for coming in. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I just have. I guess I have one last thought. Do you have anything else before? No. 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 As we learn more and more about like these uh, side hustles that physicians have, <laughs> right? As we learn more and more about like these projects that physicians take on, and as they reduce their clinical hours to take on these other projects, there are, I think, some people out there who do use a moral argument to say that physicians should use all of their time to see patients because there's a physician shortage, and so sometimes people will say things like, "Oh, you know, it's morally." Um, wrong for a physician to leave medicine because there's such a shortage like how would you respond to people who say that i would say why is there a shortage to begin with right <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's part of why i went into it is to look at you know systems right and asking question question why things are the way they are and i think there's a shortage um, well, and first of all, actually, my um, economics professor questioned whether there is a shortage to begin with or not. If you ask him, he might have a different response. Something that's close to me is, is residency applications, right? The idea of having gone through four years of school and not knowing 100% whether I'm going to match because there aren't enough residency spots, to me, is, is a bit outrageous. <laughs> yeah. You're investing, and people are investing so much of their own time in terms of becoming a physician and not being able to guarantee them a training spot to me is a huge systemic issue. And I think there's a lot of different reasons why there is a shortage of physicians. Um, and I won't go on a complete tangent because I have my own opinions about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we all have thoughts about <laughs> yeah. that. But right. We'll talk about that off here. <laughs> that's a different, that's, yeah, that's a different podcast I can come back for. I think people should have the right to decide how they choose their career path. Um, and if they think that their gifts and their skills will be put to better use in a different way than, you know, seeing patients one-on-one, -on -one, then I think that's kind of their decision. I mean, with that said, I, do, I did consider for a while whether I did want to do residency, you know, in all transparency. But I think for me, I can't really do one without the other, to be honest with you. You know, I feel like to be an effective administrator or leader, I need to be able to see patients and connect with patients. And, and it's also something that I've trained for for so long. So the idea of not being able to provide care to patients isn't something that I was willing to not do. But I think if, if people decide again that that's something that works for them, then more power to them. Well, I think I personally agree with you. I think most people right. do. You're not a slave to society. <laughs> <laughs> After you get an MD, you can choose to practice however you wish. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Oh, thank, you. thank you both. Yeah, and to all of our listeners out there, we will be back next week. 
Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have questions, comments, or episode suggestions, you can submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.